0: Um, hello and welcome to the Idea Pod, uh, which is a podcast for examining uh, ethical issues in applied ethics and bioethics and a range of other topics. Um, brought to you by the Idea Centre, which is a centre for applied ethics here at the University of Leeds. Uh, my name is Tom Hancock's. I'm a lecturer and consultant at the Idea Centre. Uh, and this week, I have the pleasure of uh, being joined by one of our past alumni, uh, Georgina James. Hello, Hello, Georgina. Hi. Um, So Georgina was uh, on the MA in Healthcare Ethics and uh, Georgina wrote a a very um, well-received and excellent dissertation which was on uh, the topic of reproductive rights um, around addicts Uh, and in particular addressing the issue of of whether it's permissible to incentivise the sterilisation of addicts. Um, So this podcast is going to be um, asking Georgina a little bit about her research uh, and some of the main conclusions and and arguments that she develops within it. So hello Georgina, thanks very much for joining us.
1: That's okay. Uh,
0: Georgina, your uh, research project was called uh, Project Prevention Paid prophylaxis or an attack on autonomy. Please, could you say a little bit about what your research was about?
1: Yeah, of course. So um, my uh, research was looking at an organisation called Project Prevention, um, which is a US organisation which pays Um, drug and alcohol addicts $300 to use long-acting contraception or to be sterilised and therefore effectively preventing them from having children. And throughout my dissertation and my research, I was examining the morality of this kind of organisation and exploring the impact um, that it has on the drug addicts' autonomy and their reproductive rights.
0: Okay, brilliant. Thank you. And, and, and what was it that uh, inspired you to, to engage in your master's research in this area?
1: Um, well, I'd, I've always been quite interested in reproductive and sexual health and the sort of ethical issues which arise when one person's decision directly impacts another as as a mother's does on her children or her potential children and how this sort of sits with the concept of personal autonomy and all the other factors that come into that. Um, but I first came across the sort of concept of paying people to limit their procreation on an episode of um, BBC Radio 4's Inside the Ethics Committee, which discussed providing cash incentives to homeless women who are also often addicted to drugs when they had a contraceptive implant inserted. And I found this sort of uh, dichotomy between valuing the woman's autonomy, acting in their best interests, preventing harm to them, and also preventing harm to their children and the rest of society, really interesting, um, but also quite challenging. And so I did a bit um, more research into this sort of area and came across Project Prevention and was keen to sort of explore that a bit further.
0: Yeah. OK, fantastic. Um, so I think you mentioned that uh, Project Prevention is a, a project that's mainly based in the US. Um, and has some traction there did you find that it it was likely that it something like project prevention might uh, come into existence in the uk
1: yeah so it's certainly possible and that was actually one of the main drivers for my research into this scheme because Um, Although starting in the US, Project Prevention has actually been operating in the UK since 2010. Um, But here they've been limited to paying um, drug addicts to use long acting contraception rather than to be permanently sterilised. And they say on their website that the British Medical Association currently makes it, too difficult for them to pay addicts for their sterilisation but they do actively encourage their supporters and their proponents to petition the BMA um, to change this policy and considering that the scheme is entirely donor funded and actually receives considerable support from people in well-respected positions including some medical professionals and midwives I do think that there is a genuine potential that if this support continues project prevention UK could become as extensive as it is in the US.
0: Yeah Okay. Um, you, you mentioned briefly there that, that there's different um, ways of going about sterilisation and prob- probably different definitions of, of what sterilisation is or different types of sterilisation. Could you say a little bit about what you mean by sterilisation?
1: Yeah, so that's a, that's a really good point, actually, because when I, when I say sterilisation, um, I mean a permanent method of contraception, which irreversibly prevents a pregnancy so in men this can be in the form of a vasectomy um, and in females this is often um, in the form of a tubal occlusion so it prevents either the man or the woman ever um having a having a child so that's different to the long-acting contraception which are sort of concept of methods which just require admission maybe less than once a month and prevent pregnancy for extended periods of time that are um essentially reversible. So it's the long acting methods that project prevention are paying addicts to use in the UK um, and it's the sterilization and the long acting that are being um incentivized in the US.
0: Yeah. Okay. I think that's that's a good point to clarify. Um, so, um, just one question I had was whether you, when you first approached the topic, you mentioned that you listened to some um, things on, on the BBC and, and that was part of the motivation, but also that yeah. you've had a sort of uh, interest in the area uh, prior to that about female reproductive rights and, and issues around that. When you first approached the topic of, of uh, the incentivization of sterilization, did you have any kind of intuition initial gut feelings about what might be acceptable or what might not be acceptable
1: yeah so I think my initial thought when I when I first came across the idea was that it seemed I found it quite shocking actually um I think just because maybe bringing my own sort of biases and interests I've always sort of thought of of reproduction as something quite Um, important and something quite sort of fundamental to us and what makes us sort of human and I feel like it's a big part of our lives so I think when I originally came across I did feel quite shocked that that was a a possibility.
0: Yeah so your initial sense was that it was probably wrong?
1: I think so yeah.
0: Yeah okay and did you did that intuition um, was that a, a key part of your thesis did that intuition stay as, as you were making your, your arguments?
1: Yeah, it, it did, really. So um, I think throughout my research, I, there were lots of challenges that came up that made me think, oh, well, this it, it. might be it might be wrong to pay people to not have children. But is it as wrong as, say, allowing children to be born um, addicted to drugs? And um, so. It, I was challenged in that way, um, but I think I, I, I eventually came to the conclusion that um, it, was, it was wrong, no matter what the sort of other consequences of allowing these drug addicts to reproduce were.
0: Yeah, okay. Um, so, one of the central um, parts of your argument is, is the idea that, um, it, it, well, it is the issue of autonomy. Mm -hmm. Um, And and the concern that if you incentivise sterilisation, that that can have a a sort of corrosive impact on um, the autonomy of the addict. Could you say a little bit more about about that argument?
1: Yes. So the um, addict's autonomy and the importance of autonomy was really central to my thesis um, and sort of. Originally, um, I have spent quite a lot of time exploring what autonomy was and what I sort of t- took it to mean. And I fa- found it quite difficult originally to get quite a clear concept of um, what's ne- necessary for autonomy and how is it undermined and how does it sort of exist as a concept um, because much of the sort of literature either focused on internalist or externalist views of autonomy and neither of which I found completely satisfactory. So I ended up um, advocating a socio-relational account of autonomy, um, which sort of gives four conditions that are individually necessary and together sufficient for autonomy. Um, And I then assessed project prevention scheme of incentivising sterilisation against this sort of criteria um, and found that um, it basically made these addicts incapable of making autonomous reproductive decisions.
0: Yeah, okay. And um, and what was it that you you found um, appealing about this socio-relational idea of all time? Um,
1: So I found this idea convincing because um it 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 incorporates the idea that there's something within us uh, within our internal psyche a sort of um i think osana says a critical capacity for critical reflection that's necessary for autonomy um but It also accepts that there are some external factors which can impact our autonomy, um, such as influences which might jeopardise our psychological integrity, such as manipulation and coercion. Um, And it also takes account of some socio-relational properties, such as the kind of social conditions that we are exposed to and considering that... um, addicts are often really disproportionately affected by the kind of social conditions which can be debilitating to autonomy i thought that this was a really good criteria to apply to apply to them
0: yeah you mentioned um th- this aspect of critical reflection and yeah I-, I think one of the really interesting parts of your thesis is is the way in which well firstly that critical reflection is really important for our autonomous decision making but also secondly that Um, addiction can have a really um, debilitating effect on our ability to critically reflect about things. And obviously, that's one of the features of of what's bad about addiction. Um, Could you say a a bit more about how addiction impacts on critical reflection and how that relates to autonomy?
1: Yes. So um, one of the things that I found was necessary for um, autonomous critical reflection was the idea that we can have lots of these um, competing interests and, and desires and, in our brain. So we might ha- desire lots of different things which can compete and compete and possibly conflict. But we become autonomous and can make autonomous decisions when we can unify these um, and make decisions which, are extended over time and reflect our unification of, of, of these interests and reflect an extended our extended will. Um, but the nature of addiction um, and the way it affects people's brains mean that addicts are prone to experiencing extremely sharp um, preference reversals. So it's actually really common for an addict to state and genuinely desire that they don't want to take drugs or that they weren't addicted, but also have this coexisting genuine des- desire to consume drugs, and they they exhibit this inability to unify these desires to consistently extend their will across time, and therefore fail this um, critical reflection and internal psyche criteria, which is, is necessary for autonomy.
0: Yeah, okay, um, brilliant. Did you think, while you were doing your research, did you think that um, there, there was any way in which you could design a scheme that was similar to project prevention, um, which, you know, involved the incentivisation of um, sterilisation, was there any way that you could design that in a way that would respect or, or you know, uh, enhance autonomy, or do you, did you feel that it was just destined to to, to never work on autonomy grounds?
1: Yeah, so that's interesting. It's something I did consider quite a lot. Um, But I think the conclusion I came to is that the crucial combination of um, an addict's diminished capacity to make autonomous decisions and the fact that incentivising their sterilisation maximises on this and further undermines it means that when there are incentives offered to drug addicts to be sterilized, i don't think that there is a way that that can ever ever be um ethically permissible um and I think there might be schemes um that could be designed to benefit addicts definitely um but I think a better way for a sort of more beneficial scheme um to spend this three hundred dollars might be it would be better spending providing addicts with rehabilitation um, or preventing addiction to prevent the sort of vulnerability to having their autonomy undermined in the first place. I don't I don't think that incentivising sterilisation and therefore maximising on their on addicts diminished autonomy can ever be permissible.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's really interesting. Um, so uh, we've mentioned this the central argument of um, autonomy, uh, and obviously that 's one of the key key parts mm-hmm. of your argument but there are, there are other aspects to your argument as well uh, yeah. and one of the the key points that you make um, or, or rather one of the key arguments that you challenge is this idea that um, incentivizing sterilization might be a good thing because it uh, prevents harm to children. Um, or, you know, soon to be born children. Um, could you say a little bit more about that argument and why you don't think it, it works?
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah, you're right. So Project Prevention give um, preventing child suffering as their one of their primary motivations for their scheme. Um, and sort of implicit in this claim is the idea that the children of drug addicts would be better off not being born than being subject to the the adversities that come with parental addiction and this kind of claim is quite similar to those seen um, in legal wrongful life claims um, where an infant claims damages against their parents for allowing them to come into existence uh, given that it was known or should have been known that their existence would be severely afflicted. Um, I, I took sort of a stance that this couldn't be applied to the addicts of ch- the children addicts um, and used Feinberg's concept of what constitutes um, such a wrongful life to to argue this. So I think it's important to realise I'm not disputing that addicts children aren't harmed in one sense in that their interests might be negatively affected by their parents' addiction. Um, But I argue that they're not harmed in the sense which constitutes a wrongful life, um, because by being brought into existence, their rights haven't been violated. And for a life to be truly wrongful, um, Feinberg states that it must be rational to prefer non-existence than to prefer that life. Um, And these children's life although they experience quite a lot of adversities um as long as their lives are minimally worth living it cannot be said that their lives are wrongful and um, because they've not been harmed in the sort of morally relevant sense that constitutes a wrongful life and i, I took take the stance that the lives of addicts children are in the very least, minimally worth living, like the NSPCC estimates that one in seven infants live with a substance misusing parent. And I think the suggestion that the non-existence of this many children um, is preferable is really quite uncomfortable and implausible enough to reject it.
0: Yeah, I think I think it's a really interesting point. And I think, um, as you say, you know, the motivation that Project Prevention give is, is to prevent suffering to children, but actually, that it also almost seems that like that's an unexamined assumption that they just assume that children born of addicts will always necessarily be in a state of suffering. Yeah, but actually, exactly. by challenging that, you're making the really important point that we can't just assume that, um, you know, children of addicts do go on to live flourishing lives and go on to be, you know, very successful and and happy people so that that basic assumption of project prevention seems really questionable
1: yeah and i think it's yeah it's definitely true and i think even if people have an issue with that and say well um these children do experience awful lives and they do experience adversities which is it is true like that there are real issues that do come with um being with addiction, that doesn't necessarily mean that their lives are wrongful or that they would be better off not being born. And it's that sort of distinction that I think was quite important.
0: Yeah. And I suppose it is part of the challenge that it, it, it's very difficult to generalize for all children of addicts, that you yeah. know, it may be the case that generally addiction will, you know, tend towards. Having kids who will lead live difficult lives, it doesn't necessarily follow that from addiction that all children's lives will be awful. It's, it's probably more of a case by case.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, I think it's a really important um, challenge to, to this sort of motivation of pushing. Um, another really important challenge that that you make is against this argument that um, incentivizing sterilization is a good thing because it is of benefit to the addicts themselves
1: mm-hmm. um
0: i wonder if you could say a little bit about that argument um and why you think that it doesn't work
1: yeah and um, so that argument sort of when i was doing my research it sort of came seemed to arise from times where people have challenged project prevention and said oh i don't said to like the founder i don't think that this is a good thing that you're doing it's it's not good for the women and they'd come back and say oh actually it is because it means that they don't experience the financial burden of having children and the emotional and physical burden of pregnancy and everything um so it's essentially claiming that it benefits these um female addicts but my main problem with this claim was that Um, I believe it demonstrates a misconception of what it means to truly benefit somebody um, and think that interventions which aim or claim to benefit people um, need to benefit them according to their own standards, the individual's own standards, rather than according to some of their own predetermined measure. Um, and at no point does Project Prevention's incentivised sterilisation make an effort to elicit the addict's con- own conception of the good, and they don't prioritise it either. So nudging the addicts towards um, choosing sterilisation and then paying them $300 to do so um doesn't necessarily reflect uh, the choices that these addicts might have made if they were free from the burdens um, of addiction, which limit their ability to make autonomous choices. Um, And it doesn't like, like we said about generalizing the um, what's good for the children. It definitely generalizes what's good for the addict. What's good for one um, addict might not be good for another um, person because their addiction doesn't take away the fact that these are are individual people with individual conceptions of what is good for them and individual priorities.
0: Yeah. Did, did you did you find that? Um, I mean, I suppose one way of reading the the problem of giving someone three hundred dollars to you know, incentivise their sterilisation is when that person's an addict, it's pretty clear what they're going to be doing with that three hundred dollars, um, and it's not going to be. You know, buying uh, books or yeah. Yeah, healthy food necessarily it's going to be probably buying more drugs so did, did you find that that was part of the problem is yeah. $300 seems to just probably keep them in a state of addiction or, or facilitate keeping them in a state of addiction
1: yeah definitely so it really I think it really does contribute to that sort of vicious cycle um, and like so the research I found showed that um, the three hundred dollars would be highly likely to enable inc- and increase the purchase of drugs, like you said, likely increasing consumption and exacerbating the inability for the critical reflection, further undermining autonomy. Um, it also this incentive can be seen to undermine autonomy in a different way as well. Um, and we can sometimes think about incentives um, tipping over to become inducements. And that happens when. Um, they're of such they have such characteristics that distort people's judgments about decisions they're making and cause an underestimation of the risks and an overestimation of the benefits. Um, and as the three hundred dollars project prevention of providing uh, is more than most addicts could easily access. I think it's it, I argue that it can be said to be this sort of inducement um, and And another part of addiction is that um, addicts are quite likely um, to exhibit high levels of something called hyperbolic discounting, um, which is a a phenomenon seen in normal human. When I say normal, I mean humans who are not addicted to drugs, um, where we overvalue um, goods when they become immediately available to us. Um, So even if we Consistently prefer X to Y. When Y becomes imminently available, um, we're much more likely to just go for it and take, take that option. And this is seen to a really high extreme in addicts. And as the $300 would make these drugs imminently available to them, incentivizing sterilization further feeds into increasing their access to drugs and feeding their addiction even more in that, by exploiting these tendencies of addiction.
0: Yeah. Do, do you think uh, or did you think while you're doing the research that, that the amount of money makes a difference? So imagine that, for instance, they were paid $3,000 or $30,000. Would that make any difference, do you think?
1: i think i I think that is quite interesting um i think that the amount of money wouldn't change the amount that autonomy is undermined considering the um nature of addiction and the characteristics we've discussed um hang on um But I think I think that as it wouldn't change the fact that autonomy is undermined, I think I'd have to say that it doesn't um, make it any better. Because another another key part of my argument is that autonomy is intrinsically valuable um, because it's it's very connected um to our personhood and it's it's essential and it's valuable in itself not just for the benefits it confers so even if we say okay addicts might not have autonomy but at least they have thirty thousand dollars um i don't think that that takes away from the wrongness of undermining this intrinsically valuable concept
0: yeah I think that it's a really interesting point, and I think it leads nicely on to the next question I, I wanted to ask, which is um, another really important part of your argument, which is probably something that people perhaps think less about in this area is, is this idea of um, the commodification of production, of mm-hmm. and um, one of the challenges you raise to this idea that you can, in effect, put a price on someone's reproductive rights or reproductive capacity, um, you challenge that idea because it, it, it represents putting a price on something that fundamentally there shouldn't be a price put on. Um, yeah. I wonder if you could say much, uh, a little bit more about um, this idea of commodification and, and why you think it's problematic in, in this context.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, I, I first came across this uh, this idea when I was reading... Um, some of the political philosopher Michael Sandal's work um, and he suggests that by attaching a monetary value to a good or a concept um, we, imp- we imply that it's appropriate to treat that thing as um, an instrument for profit or for use and then he argues that not everything can be properly valued in this way um, and I believe that reproduction and reproductive rights is a is a perfect example of this um, because our reproduction and reproductive rights are fundamentally tied to our personhood in the same way that our um, intrinsic organs are and our, our organs are valuable so ascribing them a monetary value cheapens them um, and fails to properly value them. Another thing that I found really interesting was the idea that The commodified and non-commodified versions of some things can't exist at the same time. So um, once we commodify something, um, it will eventually become void of its intrinsic value. So if we commodify the addict's reproductive capacities, um, eventually we will make them make these capacities void of their intrinsic, valuable and encourage society to see these people as beings with reproductive capacity rather than as whole persons. And I think that seems like a good enough reason to preclude doing so.
0: Yeah, I think it's I think it's a really uh, interesting point. And I think obviously uh, Sandel's work is really Sort of topical in many ways, and, and I think you apply it really well to this topic. But you know, it's in 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 the world we live in where you can buy pretty much anything off the internet, including you know love, friendship, and all of these other things that people find intrinsically valuable. Yeah. I think you, you you apply that argument really well to the idea of reproduction, uh, and to the area of reproduction. Um, and I suppose a lot of it's part of the argument that people have against paid surrogacy and, and other areas as well is that you know paying someone to give up their reproductive rights is yeah, is it in a problematic way?
1: I think I think as well, and um, it's it's important to realise it's not just their reproductive capacities that are being commodified; it's also their reproductive rights Um and the fundamental right to reproduce is grounded um, in the basic right to autonomy which I've spoken a lot about and so having discussed the importance of this I think by commodifying reproduction and reproductive rights we by default also lead to commodification of autonomy which seems like a pretty dangerous and slippery slope ethically I think
0: yeah Um, yeah I I suppose uh, uh, one and it's linked to this. One of the kind of problems that you might see in, in this idea of paying an addict money to do something or not do something is that you're almost treating them as, them as someone who can be paid off in various ways. And, and you might think that, and I think it links to the commodification point and, and your point about the commodification of autonomy is that it's quite an unpleasant way to treat a human being by treating them as someone who can be paid off.
1: In yeah. yeah. So we're not just ting the intrinsic value of their capacities or their rights but themselves as people I think is, yeah it's a good way to look at it
0: yeah definitely great okay it's um, really interesting um I, I had a few questions about you know whether you whether you thought it, it might make a difference who offers the service so you know let's imagine that project prevention becomes um, uh, A reality in the UK, and that people find it attractive. And you know, I don't know, maybe we have a huge mass problem with addiction, and um, people think, well, one way of getting around the problems with addiction is by offering something like Project Prevention. Do you think that it would change the sort of moral picture if it was a state offered service? So, imagine that the NHS offered the service rather than um, a sort of private. Organisation, do you think that that would change anything morally speaking?
1: Um, I think that it would be tempting to think that it would considering that if it was, like you say, it was a massive problem, it might benefit lots of people. But I think when we look back at the fundamentals of what makes it essentially wrong, the fact that um, the state is funding it rather than a non-profit private organisation, I don't think makes a difference. Um, a, a, another argument I considered, aside from the autonomy one, was that um, paying addicts to be sterilised is exploitative um, because it fails to benefit them as fairness requires. Um, so, although we might say that the addicts benefit from the money that they receive, um, and so it's mutually beneficial, I argued that it's that benefit actually bestows a false benefit on the addicts. Um, so, if we consider it's it's highly unlikely that people free from the desperation and limits of addiction would view losing their reproductive autonomy as a benefit despite being paid $300. So, I think from that respect, we can say that the $300 can't be seen to benefit addicts as fairness requires and is therefore exploitative. Um, and I don't think that the fact that the state was paying them this money would change that in any way um a better way for the state to address um the insufficiency and the problem would be to try and eradicate the vulnerability which makes addict which makes this exploitation of addicts possible so like i said before this 300 dollars would be better spent providing rehabilitation or preventing addiction rather which much longer term more sustainable solution than just preventing the reproduction of a of a, of a group of addicts
0: yeah Yeah, I think that's a a really good um, point. And I suppose, I mean, on one reading, it's it's actually probably worse for the states to take control of this because exactly as you say, you know, it's not the state's job to exploit people. Presumably one of the key jobs of the state is to protect people's health care and precisely to get them out of a state of addiction. Yeah. So, you know, on one reading, it's probably better for, uh, or or rather worse for the state to be giving out incentivization for Mm -hmm sterilizing addicts um, because it just looks like a, a strange thing for the state to do um one uh, one question i had was 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 whether we might um defend i'm sort of right in the last ditch of trying to defend something like okay. prevention uh, not that i have any particular stake in the matter but i'm just sort of hypothetically let's try and defend it as much as possible one final argument i wanted to to test out was can we see something like project prevention as being analogous to something like a medical trial? So, you know, in the same way as we pay people to take part in medical trials, um, to test out medicine. I mean, a good topical example would be the coronavirus medicine. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: we pay people to take part in trials. I think in the case of coronavirus, there have been lots of volunteers, but generally speaking, we pay people to take part in trials because it's in the public interest to have good medicines that are well tested and mm-hmm. that's all the regulatory hurdles. Um, could we say that, that a similar rationale could be given for um, project prevention so that it, it's in the public's interest to have, you know, um, or to not have children in care, because obviously putting children in care requires a lot of public money and diverts money away from other important services. So could you say it's in the public interest to pay addicts to um, not have children, in the same way as it's in the public interest to pay people to take part in medical trials? Would that argument have any legs, do you think?
1: Yeah, so I think that's a good question and one I did sort of consider quite a lot and thought about when I was writing my dissertation. Um, So I suppose it's analogous in the way that the outcome might benefit the public if you construe that to be a benefit. Um, But I think it sort of comes back to the key combination that I argue makes project prevention uh, reprehensible, which is the combination of its clients or addiction and the cash incentive, which necessarily impedes autonomous decision making. And although people in medical trials are paid um, to be participants, I don't think that this crucial combination exists. So when people are paid to take part in medical trials, they always undergo a rigorous consent process where it's ensured that their decision to take part in the trial is fully autonomous and they had to consent to all these different basically every eventuality and not only is this process absent in project prevention and incentivization of sterilization um it it wouldn't be fixed by introducing a consent process either because the combination of their addiction and the offer of cash incentives would mean that project prevention's clients would would essentially fail and not be a, considered able to autonomos- autonomously consent, even if such a process was present. And um, so, I think, unlike paying the participants of medical trials, um, paying addicts to be sterilised, although it might benefit the state, it, this would be a, at the expense of the addict's reproductive autonomy. Which, given my arguments about the value of autonomy, I think I believe is still impermissible.
0: Yeah yeah no okay i'm, I'm, I'm convinced <laughs> uh, brilliant um one one question I had is if you and i think you've touched on this a little bit in terms of you know ways in which the state can better um, help addicts that don't involve incentivization but if you were in charge of introducing something like project prevention but you had complete um control over over how it how it was run or or, or you know a similar service it wouldn't have to be exactly like project prevention how would you sort of design it to to perfectly meet some of the challenges that you've you've raised
1: yeah so i I guess i can make a few suggestions before i go into this research this kind of area a bit more um but i think that to truly achieve the Project prevention's claimed aim of benefiting the addicts, they've got to, an intervention would have to prioritise um, enhancing individual autonomy and alleviating background conditions, which increase uh, the addict's vulnerability to be exploited. And I don't actually think such a scheme would look anything like project prevention. Um, I think it would, it might include medical rehabilitation for um, drug addiction. Um, To sort of minimize the autonomy impeding effects of addiction, but I think it would also have to take, take a really individualized approach um, and work with addicts to establish their reproductive preferences and empower them to be able to make autonomous um, decisions. I don't, I don't know exactly how these myths might be designed. I think that's probably an area that could be researched a bit further but i think it it would be along those sorts of lines of rehabilitation um, and empowerment rather than a quick fix and preventing reproduction
0: yeah okay brilliant um final question georgina um <laughs> when you were engaging in your research did you find anything uh, that surprised you
1: um I was quite surprised um, when I was looking at the sort of legal regulation of incentivising sterilisation and things. um, And I discovered that the Human Rights Act um, only applies to public authorities and private organisations when they perform a public function. So that would be like a private hospital providing NHS care. Um, And this means that organisations like Project Prevention, are not legally bound by the Human Rights Act, so they're not required to protect, protect people's fundamental rights. Um, and this means that Project Prevention's impingement of addicts' right to reproduce isn't actually legally prohibited. And that's something I found really quite shocking um, and quite surprising. And it, it formed a bit of my um, suggestion in my implications chapter that we might need to look at reformulating the Human Rights Act to ensure uh, sort of stricter and clearer regulations of these private organisations, which do have a very real potential to infringe human rights.
0: Yeah. Okay. fantastic. Um, Georgina, thank you so much for um, giving up your time today to talk about your research. It's been really, really interesting. Yeah, thank you and um yeah hopefully if you find time in amongst your medical school degree you, you may be able to um, do some further research in, in the area at some point yeah <laughs> brilliant thanks very much Georgina and thanks very much to everyone for listening
1: IdeaPod is produced by the Interdisciplinary Ethics Applied Centre at the University of Leeds. Find out more at ahc.leeds.ac.uk slash ethics. Music composed and conducted by Josh Armitage.